Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we thank you, we praise you, we, we honor you, we glorify you. We are just so mindful of how great and awesome and uh, wonderful you are. And God, as uh, we deal with life's difficulties and hardships and um, transitions, God, we pray uh, just for uh, your presence and your peace and your direction. Uh, we pray that we'd be able to, to hear that, to see that, and to respond appropriately. Lord, we, uh, we ask that you use this time now for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We are coming toward the, uh, to the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we have just a, a couple more Sundays. Uh, looking at the miracles of Mark, and I hope that as we've gone through these these stories of Christ's power and His presence, that uh, God has used those to to help you uh, to to stand in Him, to to find strength in Him, to find encouragement in Him, and in what He's capable of doing. But as we we come to the end of uh, our journey here, we we come to a a. a couple of passages that are distinctive in terms of, of how Mark uses them. Um, every gospel writer, every writer for that matter, whether we're talking about a biblical writer or, or just a uh, uh, person who you know writes novels or whatever, they all have their own distinctive ways of doing things, their own ways of communicating certain truths. Um, uh, and it's important at, at times to stop and just kind of pay attention to those things to, to see if perhaps there's something deeper going on there than just what is there on the surface. And one of the things that Mark does is he uses this, this feature called inclusios. Um, now, an inclusio is a, is a means of communicating something where you start with a story and you, you end with a story, and the stories are very similar. They have some, some, some components to them that are nearly identical, and you tell them on each side of a whole series of stories to help you kind of define and understand that in-between part, okay? Uh, a, a more common way or more uh, easy way perhaps to think of it is and the way some people kind of refer to these is instead of using the word inclusio, which nobody uses in common day, everyday language. I, you know, I never, well, that was a really good inclusio you had there. You know, nobody uses that term. Um, but they, they call it the Markin sandwich. Okay, if that helps you think. And one story is the top piece of bread, the other story is the bottom piece of bread, and you understand the whole thing by the meat in the middle. Okay, if that helps you kind of understand what we're talking about, then then uh, then use that. If not, then just ignore that and go on. Uh, but um, uh, Mark does that sort of thing. He starts, for instance, in Mark chapter one uh, with the baptism of Jesus, and it says that as Jesus came out of the water. The heavens ripped open, and the Father said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, And so you have there in that very first story, one of the very first stories in Mark, you have the, the, the strange word ripped and the, the phrase of God saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, then you go all the way to the end of Mark, and at the end of Mark you have the story of the crucifixion. And there in the crucifixion it says that as Jesus died, the veil in the temple was ripped, torn in two, the exact same word that's used back in chapter 1. And there, in Mark, you have the centurion at that moment say, 
Truly this man was the son of God. Okay? And so you have what? You have um, the ripping in both stories and the son of God phrase in both stories. And they're, they're paired there together in a, in a way that only Mark does. Why does he do that? Well, the Gospel of Mark focuses really in on the humanity of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, much more so than the other Gospel writers. And so um, that's kind of unexpected if you're talking about one who's supposed to be the Son of God, right? You, you don't, if you think, okay, Son of God, that's, that's power, that's majesty, that's, that's all sorts of abilities, that, that's, uh, you know, uh, in in the Greek world, especially, you know, the, the people who were quote offspring of the gods, they were not necessarily good people. They were selfish and about themselves and all that. But Mark has portrayed Jesus throughout as the suffering servant, and yet he's also the Son of God. And so Mark's saying, "What? I'm gonna I'm gonna rip away, so to speak, your co- concepts of what it means to be the Son of God in this book." Okay. Everything I tell you, everything I relate to you, everything I communicate to you about Jesus as the Son of God is going to be surprising to you. It's going to be shocking to you, okay? Because he's the suffering servant too. And, and that's that's extraordinary. And so that whole ripping and Son of God, pairing those two together at the beginning of the end is meant to kind of give us some understanding of what's going on in between. Well, today, as we come toward the end of the Gospel of Mark, we see him do it again. We see him do Another one of these sandwiches, okay? Another one of these, these, these pairings of stories. At this time, it has to do with two stories concerning the healing of blind individuals. And this one really stands out, and it's apparent that this is what, John, uh, what Mark is doing because the first account, the one in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, is only found in the Gospel of Mark, okay? Now, um, there's not a lot of stories that are just found in Mark. Okay, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, just 16 chapters. Um, I mean, when you compare that to, to Luke and Matthew and John that are just huge, Mark's just this little bitty, almost short story, uh, if you will. And so there's not going to be a lot that's in Mark that's not in the others. There's just not, because he's so short. There's going to be a lot shared with the others. So when something is there, that's distinctively him, it's going to stand out. And, and that's what we find today with this first, with this story. It says, beginning in verse 22, that they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes, and the man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Now, what do you notice about that story that's a little bit different? Well, one thing you notice is that uh, Jesus' method of healing is a little bit different. Okay, He doesn't speak, just speak. He doesn't just touch. He spits. You have, you have the, it's, it's just different, okay? Let's, let's just leave it at that. But the second thing I think that stands out to me, at least, with that, with that first account there is what? It's not immediate, okay? It's not instantaneous. And that especially stands out in Mark, because if you remember, we said that in Mark, Mark likes that word immediate. He's always talking about, and immediately this happened, and immediately that happened, and immediately this took place. And so Mark's all about the immediacy of things. 
But here in this one, what? Jesus touches the eyes, and the guy gets a little bit of sight. What do you see? Well, you know, I see the people, but they're, they look kind of like trees that are walking around. Okay? And so Jesus says, okay. And then he touches his eyes again and heals him completely that time. Why the, why the two-step healing? I mean, we know, we know Jesus can heal just by saying, you're healed. And healed completely. There, there's eight accounts of healing blindness in the Gospels, and like five or six of those are just immediate. You're healed and good to go. Jesus doesn't even say, do anything. He just says it. Okay? So why the two-stage here? Well, Mark's laying uh, a foundation. Mark's creating some expectations here. Because when we talk about blindness, there's two kinds of blindness. There's the physical blindness. That's obvious. That's what the that's the obvious intention here. But there's also what? There's a kind of spiritual blindness. The blindness that comes out of just not seeing things the way we're supposed to. We, there's truth around us. God's working around us. God's doing things around us, and we just don't see it. And that's a blindness that I that all of us struggle with. Okay, Paul talks about how we in this present age, in this present situation. We are all blind, and we need to be given that sight. Okay, And so Mark, I think, starting that connection. If you go just a, a couple chapters more into chapter 10, verses 46 and, and following, you, you find the second of the stories of the blind man healed. It says, they came to Jericho, and he was leaving as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him to keep quiet. But he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. And he threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, or teacher, the blind man said to him, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you immediately. He could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. And so with this one, you, here, number one, you see the word immediately. Immediately he saw. It was it was complete. But what, what, you, what stands out in this exchange is what? He refers to Jesus as teacher. Bef right before he gets the insight, right before he gets the vision. Teacher, I just want to see. And Jesus says, you got it. And he can see. And so, again, you, you see this coupling of these, these healings, and, and Mark is saying some, some distinctive things here in the exchanges. And when we step back and we look at the stories in between the two, it becomes clear that Mark really is intending us to see that this is not just about physical blindness. There's more than just one kind of blindness. There is this spiritual blindness that sometimes engulfs us, sometimes makes things difficult. Because in the stories between, what do we see? Well, we see we see Peter's confession, where Peter uh, confesses, admits, acknowledges who Jesus is, and, uh, and, and says this great statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He sees that clearly. Or does he? Because just a few minutes later, what happens? 
he rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, you can't go and you can't die. And Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. Okay? So what? Peter sees things, but he doesn't see them completely. He doesn't understand that Jesus as the Son of God also means Jesus is going to be the one who dies. He, he, he's blinded to that truth. Why? Because his culture has blinded it to him. His teaching, his upbringing has told him that when the Messiah comes, he's just going to do all sorts of great, wonderful things. He's going to do powerful things. He's going to do these incredible things, and, and life's just going to be wonderful and great and peaceful and all those other things. And so that's what he's looking for. And so when Jesus says, i got to go to Jerusalem and die, Peter says, no, no, you don't say those words. You don't say those words. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because what you're saying is trying to get me off track of who God would have me be. So he doesn't see quite as clearly. Then you have the story of the transfiguration, where they go up on the mountain, and, and, and you have... Jesus transfigured this, this, this moment where he is transformed and he's seen in his glorified state in, in the status that he would have following the resurrection and so forth. And Peter, again, he, he's so excited and, and he's so involved in, man, let's build some tabernacles and let's, let's do these things. And again, gently, Jesus corrects him and says, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. This is preparation again for the death and the fact that Elijah here it has has prepared some things and and and, and then you have the, the inability of them to, to heal the demon possessed child which we'll be looking at next week the struggle of the disciples to, to see something so amazing so wonderful so life transforming and yet they still struggle with so much of who they're supposed to be then you have James and John's request where those two brothers come to Jesus. Jesus, we, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into the kingdom. Will you give us that? Will you let us do that? I mean, we've been with you for three years now, and we are clearly your favorites. So so can, can we have that? And Jesus says, you know what? That's not for me to decide. That's already been determined. Who's going to do that? And secondly, you don't really know what you're asking. Because, again, when did Jesus enter into his kingdom? On the cross. Which would mean what? If they're at his right and they're at his left, they're what? They're dying right next to him. Okay, you, you don't really know what you're asking. So again, linked to the kingdom, kingdom, connected to the kingdom, but not seeing the fullness of what's there. And all of that then culminates in the second story of Bartimaeus. Teacher, I want to see. Okay, you can see. And what's the very next thing that happens? Jesus enters into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. Okay, The very next thing after this, I want to see, you will see, is the triumphal entry. The Passion Week begins. That week when everything gets all topsy-turvy in terms of, of their expectations. Hosanna! Great is he who comes in the name of the Lord turns into crucifying within just a few days. But it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a miscalculation on Jesus' part. It was the plan from the beginning. It was what he's been trying to teach them and instruct them and, and inform them about from the very beginning. They just couldn't see it. And so as we 
we look at this account and we look at, at the unfolding and we look at these events and, and what's trying to go on here, I think what Mark is trying to say to us, what he's trying to direct us in and what he's, how he's trying to encourage us is, is to say, what are your blind spots? As a disciple of Jesus, as one who's been called to follow him, as one who's been called to, to take up your cross, to die to yourself, what are those things that you're not seeing that you should be? What are those things about his calling, his ministry, his claim on your life that you're not seeing, that you're not acting on? It's an invitation. It's a challenge. How are we like the disciples, the apostles, where we see some truths about Jesus? We see him as Savior. We see him as Lord. We see him as the one who died for us. We see him as the, the one who has called us. What are those things, though, that we don't see? What are those things that we're not acting upon? Well, I think as we consider that truth and as we consider the accounts, we see a couple things that, that function to, to, to cause that blindness, that function to, to cause that uh, difficulty in us. And, and the first of those is prejudice. Now, what does that word prejudice mean? It means to prejudge something. And so it has what? It has a variety of applications. It has a variety of, of ways that we do that. Sometimes we prejudge how God is going to work in this given situation. Sometimes we, we prejudge how, how God is going to work at all, who God is, you know, in, in any given situation. Sometimes we prejudge others based upon racial issues or social issues or religious issues or political issues or, or you know, whatever. We, we, we see certain things, and, and because we have certain things into our hearts and into our mind, we make prejudgments about people. And whenever you make prejudgments, whether it's about God and how he's going to work or people and who they are, you enter into a status of blindness. You can't see them. You can't see the situation. You can't see yourself the way God would have you see it. You can't, you can't work through the circumstance. You can't engage that person the way Christ would have you engage them. You can't see them perhaps as your neighbor, as the one who's created in the image of God. Or you can't see them as somebody who's who's in need of just some compassion and some love and some forgiveness at times. Well, you know, I see that person and, man, they had that cocky look on their face, you know. And so because they have that cocky, that arrogant look on their face, well, they must be cocky, they must be arrogant, and so I'm not going to engage them. And what we end up doing is passing by somebody who actually needs love, forgiveness, compassion, somebody who actually needs to hear Jesus loves them because we prejudge their attitude based upon how their face is structured. Okay. Or maybe they're not the color we want them to be, to interact with them. Maybe they're not the political affiliation. Oh no, they got a Biden sign on the back of their car. I, I guess I can't trust them. Or they have a Trump sticker on their car. I can't trust them. Whatever your political affiliation is, we all have these prejudging ideas and attitudes about who people are based upon certain decisions they've made. And that prevents us from being the, the, the ministers, the the 
the people who care the way we were supposed to. In, in this particular story, you, you see what? You, you see Peter's prejudging of what the Messiah is supposed to be like, which caused him to not see the truth. You, you see the, 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 the people's prejudging of Bartimaeus. You're, you're just a blind man. Just, just be quiet and let the master go on about his business. He doesn't have time for you. He's got important things to do. We're on our way to Jerusalem, after all. So you just be quiet. And then Bartimaeus is like, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm blind. I want to see. I ain't shutting up. If he tells me no, he tells me no. But I'm going to engage him in this moment. Okay. He was able to move past that prejudging. He was able to move past that situation. But as believers, we need to work on our hearts, our prejudices, because sometimes people aren't able to move past the things we put, the barriers we put in their way. Maybe they're they're not as committed as Bartimaeus was, or or maybe they're they're uh, just a, a of a of a culture that says, you know what. I don't want to be impolite. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be whatever. I don't want to be an imposition on somebody. I don't want to be a burden on somebody. So because we've given them an attitude or a or disposition that says, you're not quite who you're supposed to be, well, okay, then I'll just stay over here and be quiet. And prejudices can do a lot of damage. They can do a, a lot of hurt. They can destroy things that were once beautiful. Back in the early 17th century in England, England entered into a into a civil war. Uh, one of many that the nation faced. Uh, this one uh, had uh, the Puritans, a group led by Oliver Cromwell on one side, and and the Royalists on the other, and. and they're fighting back and forth, destroyed uh, a whole lot of lives, destroyed a whole lot of, of towns and, and regions and, and circumstances and, and some very special buildings. One of the buildings that was affected by this was Westminster Cathedral. Um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a beautiful cathedral. I'm sure you, you've seen uh, lots of, excuse me, not West, Westminster, Winchester. I'll get it out here in a minute. Uh, Winchester Cathedral. Uh, maybe you've seen pictures of it and so forth. Um, it, it's like a lot of cathedrals. It has the beautiful stained glass that tells the story of Jesus and the disciples and so forth, except for one particular window over the entrance. That particular window, the stained glass window, doesn't have images of the stories of life of Jesus. doesn't have images of the disciples. doesn't have images of the, you know, the different things that, that go on in church and so forth that are reminders of, of who we are and that sort of thing. doesn't have any of that. And the reason it doesn't have any of that is when Cromwell's forces were, were in, in Winchester and they were, they were doling out their damage, they saw the stained glass and they, they considered it too Catholic in their estimation, too you know, high church. And so they, they took iron poles and they just, busted out all the windows uh, of, of that particular glass, just, just shattered it, destroyed it. Beautiful work of art by, by all accounts. 
And then they left. And the people of Winchester got together and they collected all of those shards of glass, all those broken pieces, all those different colored uh, pieces of glass that they had there, and, and they kept them. And years passed and the Civil War abated and, and England went back to a sense of normalcy. And so they, just started, they started to restore the different buildings. And when it came time to restore that cathedral and, and what was going on there, they came to that, that glass. They had the frame there. They, they had the situation there. And they were trying to decide what to do. Do we, do we go out and, and get a new artist to bring in new stained glass that's of the traditional sort? And they said, no, we, we want to create something that, that reminds us of the brokenness of the past, but also that shows us that God can do something beautiful with that brokenness. And so what they did is they took all that stained glass that they collected from when it was destroyed, all the different shards and so forth, and they, they just put it up there as, a, as just a mosaic of different colors. And if you go to Winchester and you look at the cathedral, you'll, you'll see a stained glass that's unlike any other anywhere in England. It's the different shards, the different colors put together almost in, almost in a modern art type of sense. But it's very beautiful. But it's also a vivid reminder of the brokenness that their nation went through. And as we deal with our prejudice and our difficulties, and perhaps we have encountered others and we've dealt with others in a way that was unkind or unclear or uh, uncharitable, unloving in some way, and we've caused damage to them, we, we've hurt them, it's important for us as believers to go back and, and to do what the people of Winchester did in, in a sense, to, to take those broken pieces through the power of God and through the power of mercy and forgiveness and to put those back together to create something new and beautiful, something that, that can show how God can overcome the prejudices that we possess, the hurt that we can create. It's important for us to, to move past that so that we can see more clearly what God would have us do. A second thing that uh, kind of drives our blindness is arrogance. We, we've, we've talked a lot about that as we've gone through Mark, and I, and I think that's because, number one, I struggle with it, and preachers tend to preach about things they struggle with, but also because I think Mark is, is trying to drive home the, the reality that the arrogance is such a burden to believers when it comes to seeing what we're supposed to see. Such a barrier to, to overcome. And again, you, you see it with, with Peter's comments. That, that always, always stands out to me. That just moments before, G, he has said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then just moments later, he says what? Know you're wrong. Peter goes from, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, one of the, the grandest statements of Jesus' deity and power and majesty anywhere in the Bible, to know you're wrong. And I think in, in those, those two statements, I think we see a lot of what we struggle with as believers. Because we, we come here and we worship and we say what? Jesus, your Lord. And Thank you for your faithfulness and, and thank you for your goodness and your majesty and, 
and blessed be the name of the Lord. And we say those words and, and we mean them. They're, they're, they're our heart. They're, they're, they're our, our truth in terms of how we've connected with God and what we've seen of God and what God has done in our life. And, and we express those. And then the, within just moments, we're also saying to God, no, you're wrong. I got better ways to deal with that. I can handle that situation myself. I can deal with that myself. We're not all that different from Peter. It's that pride that settles in that that causes us to to say things and to do things that we know are wrong. But we want to look smart or we want to look intelligent. We want to look like we belong. One of my favorite stories is is the story of uh, back in the early 70s, the Museum of Modern Art in New York was having an Henri Matisse uh, exhibit. And Matisse is a, uh, he's a modern artist. So his art's not one of those that you look at and say, yeah, you know, uh, it's one of those things you got to kind of figure out, you know, uh, where you, you, you know, you don't necessarily see what they see. Okay. And so he had this, this, this artwork was there and, and over a hundred thousand people came through that museum and looked at that piece of art hanging there on the wall. And they were all talking about how glorious it was and beautiful it was and perfect it was and interpreting it and, and all these other things, you know, just expressing their, their brilliance at what was there. And after 47 days, this, this woman, this, I believe she was an accountant actually, wasn't even an art person. She's coming through and she goes, you know what? I think that painting's upside down. And sure enough, she went and got the security guard. They went and got the curator and they, they did some research and so forth. And that painting had hung for almost two months upside down. Over 100,000 people coming through and talking about how perfect it was and what it meant and all these other things. And they weren't even looking at it right. How many times do we go through life and we look at a situation, we look at a circumstance, we look at, at a problem or an issue and, we're, and we have our positions, we have our takes on it, we, we have our, our ways of describing it and understanding it and, and we feel like we're so wise and so smart and so intelligent and so all of that and we're not even looking at it correctly. We're seeing it upside down. That's what arrogance does to life circumstances. We look at the God of this universe and what He's doing in our lives and we turn things all around because we want to be right. We want to look smart or spiritual or whatever it is. And when prejudice and arrogance are in place, it begins to affect other parts of our life and our our emotions get skewed. Even our reason, our logic, our, our rationality gets messed up because we're just not looking at things the way we need to look at them. We're not seeing the whole picture. We're blinded to a part of the truth. And so Jesus comes in and, and He ministers to us. He connects with us. And just like the, the first individual, he He, he takes us through stages of understanding. 
And we need to understand in our own growth and, and in the growth of those that we're, we've been called to minister, whether they're our children or our loved ones or, or a ministry we have in the church or outside the church or whatever it is, we need to be patient with people that it, and with ourselves that it takes stages sometimes before we see things clearly. We, but we have to do what? We have to continually go back to Jesus. If that original man had said, had been driven by, by arrogance, when Jesus removed his hands and, and everything was kind of cloudy, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I got this. So I'm good to go now. What would have happened? He would have walked around seeing only part of life. He would have walked around saying, hey, I was blind, but now I see, kind of. But he had to do what? He had to say, I don't see all that clearly. I know you touched me. I know we've connected. I know you've healed me. But I'm still not seeing everything I need to see here, Lord. I'm still not seeing everything as clearly as I could, Lord. He had to admit that. He had to say it. And in our own spiritual walk, we need to, we need to, we need to get there. That as Jesus teaches us and heals us and gives us sight, we need to be able to look at the situation and say, thank you, Lord, for what you brought me through. Thank you for the healing you've given me. But I'm still not seeing everything I should. Help me. Instruct me. Guide me. We need to get past our arrogance, past our prejudices, and, and to see what it is that God wants us to see. Every journey is unique. Every journey doesn't happen immediately. But every journey, when given to Christ, will meet its goal. What does Paul say? I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If Jesus has begun working in your life, if you've come to that place where you've placed your life in his hand, submitted to his direction, to his guidance, to his, his role, he will complete that work. He's not done with you yet. So walk with humility. Walk with an open mind to what God may be wanting to do and where God may be wanting to lead. And understand it's a journey you alone can take. It's interesting in both of these accounts as well that Jesus meets these men outside the town. Well, actually, with the first one, he meets him in the town, but guides him outside the town. Isn't that, isn't that kind of interesting? Here we are in the town. He's, he's confronted by this man who's blind. And Jesus says, let's go for a walk out of town. Let's get out of here. With, with Bartimaeus, the later one, he's, he's walking out of town when Bartimaeus confronts him. He, he's already out of town. Why does, why does Mark highlight those two things? They're not necessarily important to the healing, are they? I think what Mark's trying to say there, and I think what Mark's trying to communicate is, is in our journey of moving from blindness, it's going to happen in a, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Jesus has to meet us individually where we're at because we're all going through different things. 
We all have our different prejudices. We all have our different arrogance, things that we're arrogant about. We all have different things that we're struggling with, different things we need to see, different things we need to learn. Your journey is not going to look necessarily like my journey or like the journey of someone next to you. But all of our journeys have one thing in common, and that is that Jesus has to be at the center of them. He has to be the one that we go to. He has to be the one that we listen to. Because if he's not, we will remain in blindness. And so my, my question for you today is simply this. What are those things? What are those areas in your life where blindness rules more than sight? Is it your financial life? Your married life? Your, your friendships, your work, relationships with, with people within your circle and outside your circle? What is it that, that is not where Christ would have it? What is it that you're participating in? Or what is it that, that, that you're not participating in that God would have be different? The only way you're going to discover that is by moving past the pride and coming to the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit to show you, to reveal to you those things that you're missing, those things you're not seeing. Ask for conviction. Ask for clarity. And He will be faithful to give it to guide you and to help you to become more of who he's destined you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come and, and, and we confess that there is so much about who we are, so much about how we think and what we do that's not what it ought to be. But God, we also confess that there are perhaps things in our lives that we're not even aware are there that we need to deal with. Blind spots. Things that are perhaps there because of our culture or because of what we've learned or because we just got careless along the way. God, we ask you today to open our eyes to those things. Make us aware of those failings, those shortcomings. And Lord, help us once we see them, once we understand their presence, to commit with you, to, to walk with you, to move past them, and to be the people you call us to be. Lord, we love you. We ask that you go with us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.